Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, the Scripture says, Now the main point of what is being said is this. We have this kind of high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary, and the true tabernacle, which the Lord set up, and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, Therefore, it was necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest, since there are those offering the gifts prescribed by the law. These serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle, for he said, Be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. Hallelujah. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I love you so much. Father Yahweh, I just want to lift you up right now and give you thanks for all that you do for me and for this assembly, for this congregation. But Father Yahweh, we are so unworthy. We're not deserving. And that's why it's called grace. And that's why it's called mercy. Because you give it to us, Father, when we are in our sins. While we were yet sinners, the Messiah died for us. Father Yahweh, we dwell upon that today, recognizing, Father Yahweh, that everything that you've said in your word from Genesis to Revelation is true, that you do not change your mind on anything, that you do not backtrack, you do not make mistakes. But Father Yahweh, you set things in order and you set them in stone. And Father, they are forever. They are Olam. Father, we praise you for that. We recognize all of that today. I pray that you'd open up our understanding today. Pray that you'd give us eyes that can see, ears that can hear, and a heart that is circumcised spiritually to be able to receive your word. Father, I pray that you would lead us and continue to guide us. Let us never, ever think that we've arrived let us never think that we cannot continue to learn. Humble us, Father Yahweh. Give us humility. We glory in You. And we glory in Your Son, our Savior, Elder Brother, and Kinsman Redeemer. It's through Him that we pray this prayer to You, Holy Father. Amen. I want to talk a little bit today about the earthly and the heavenly. I'm going to branch off of what I discussed on the Sabbath and get into that a little bit more. In the last lesson that I taught, we covered Yeshua's view of the temple. He had a high view of the temple, a prestigious view of the temple. He looked upon it as a very sacred, holy place. And we looked at the scriptures that showed the earthly temple to be a copy or a model of the heavenly temple. Now, I want you to keep in mind this thing, that ever since the beginning of the earthly tabernacle or temple, ever since its inception, Ever since it first took form, it has always been a copy of the heavenly tabernacle. Always. It did not just become a copy of the heavenly tabernacle after the time of the Messiah's first coming. It was a copy of the heavenly tabernacle when Moses and Aaron and the Israelites built it back at the time of Exodus 25 through 31. 
Yahweh had and has a purpose in all of those tedious and meticulous ordinances that He gave concerning the tabernacle. Every single one of those things, Yahweh has a purpose for. Every one of them. And we should never look upon any of Yahweh's ordinances as something wrong, or much less, as some people do today, something that is blasphemous. A lot of times when you talk about things in the Old Testament, as people call it, most of the time, that's really not what we should call it. We should call it the Hebrew Scriptures or the Sacred Scriptures. Paul called it the Old Testament one time in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He talks about in the reading of the Old Testament. Every other time, it was called the Holy Scriptures. And that's what we should call it now. The Old Covenant is not equivalent with the Holy Scriptures. The Old Covenant refers to the covenant made between Yahweh and Israel in Exodus chapter 19. The Holy Scriptures refer to the books of Genesis all the way through the prophet Malachi. Okay? We should never look at anything in that section of our Scriptures as being wrong, as being outdated, as being primitive, as being archaic, as being bad, or as being blasphemous. Now, you might think, well, duh, I know that, Brother Matthew, but a lot of people don't. A lot of people read things back there and they think, well, that was for then, that was for that time. But yet, as we've talked about many times in this congregation, Yahweh gives commandments. He doesn't give suggestions, number one. And when Yahweh gives those commandments, he doesn't hold one man accountable for something and then let another man go off free for that same something or violation of that same something. I've witnessed to people about it like this. Yahweh would not say that Moses was in sin for eating unclean and then say that Matthew is okay if he eats unclean. That's a mighty one that is double-minded. And, of course, we don't serve a mighty one like that, right? Yahweh's not that kind of a God. He does not change. His plan doesn't change. So nothing in that section of our Bible should be looked upon as wrong. What was precious and holy to Yahweh and also to men like Moses, Aaron, and Joshua cannot be blasphemous to us. It is just as precious and holy to us. Amen? You can say amen to that. For example, let's look at Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25, beginning at verse 31. You are to make a lampstand out of pure hammered gold. It is to be made of one piece. Its base and shaft, its ornamental cups, its calyxes and petals. Six branches are to extend from its sides. Three branches of the lampstand from one side and three branches of the lampstand from the other side. There are to be three cups shaped like almond blossoms, each with a calyx and petals on the first branch, and three cups shaped like almond blossoms, each with a calyx and petals on the next branch. It is to be this way for the six branches that extend from the lampstand. There are to be four cups shaped like almond blossoms on the lampstand shaft, along with its calyxes and petals. For the six branches that extend from the lampstand, a calyx must be under the first pair of branches from it, a calyx under the second pair of branches from it, and a calyx under the third pair of branches from it. Their calyxes and branches are to be of one piece. All of it is to be a single hammered piece of pure gold. Make seven lamps on it, 
Its lamps are to be set up so they illuminate the area in front of it. Its snuffers and fire pans must be of pure gold. The lampstand with all these utensils is to be made from 75 pounds of pure gold. Here Yahweh is very specific, and this is just one item, one utensil in his tabernacle. But he's very specific. Now, do you think that it would have been okay for Aaron to say, I know that Yahweh said he wanted these calyxes or these petals. He wanted there to be an appearance of an almond blossom here. But I really prefer the rose or the tulip, and I would rather make it out of that. And it would look pretty. Well, that would be wrong, wouldn't it? You had to make it exactly like Yahweh said to make it. There's even a special anointing oil, an oil that has a sweet aroma mentioned here in these texts, in these chapters. Exodus 25 through 31 are all chapters dealing with meticulous, tedious ordinances that pertain to the tabernacle. And there's this perfume oil that Yahweh says you are not to duplicate. You should not ever make any that is like it. It is only to be used for the purposes of the tabernacle. His ordinances are to be followed in strict detail. A lot of times when we follow Yahweh in detail, we get called a Pharisee, right? But the Pharisees, they actually didn't follow Yahweh in detail. They followed their traditions in detail, and they kept some of the letter of the law. But when it came down to the very tedious parts of Yahweh's law, the spiritual aspects of the law, they didn't follow it. Matthew 5 talks all about that. So we need to be like Moses and Aaron. It's okay. It doesn't matter what people call us. I was listening to a minister today, and he was quoting out of Luke where it says, Rejoice when people persecute you for following in the footsteps of the Messiah. And he says, And in that day leap for joy. And he said, I'm just going to pause on my sermon real quick, if y'all will excuse me, and I'm just going to start leaping. <laughs> and sometimes I feel like that. But persecution is, is when you do what's right, you may not even say anything. Somebody may just see you doing what's right, and then people want to talk about you and, because you obey Yahweh, because you stand for Him. And they can't stand it. They can't stand it because unrighteousness if it remains in unrighteousness, it cannot stand in the congregation of the righteous. Psalm chapter 1. Cannot stand in the congregation of the blessed man. So people will get upset, but it's okay. You leap for joy. You rejoice. Everything's going to be fine. Great is your reward in heaven. The prophets were persecuted before you. Yeshua said, don't be amazed if the world hates you. They hated me before they hated you. I mean, my goodness. He would tell us, look, I, my beard was plucked out. Have you ever had your beard plucked out? A crown of thorns went in my head. When's the last time that happened to you? They hated me before they hated you. And why did they hate Yeshua? Because he stood for righteousness. He did. Hebrews 1 says he loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. And it says that therefore God, even by God, Yahweh, has anointed him with the oil of gladness above his fellows. So we're to be walking in those same footsteps. And my point is, we're to be following meticulously in Yahweh's laws. And if we were back there when the tabernacle was erected and you were there around Aaron, or if you were an Aaron or a Moses, then you would be obligated to follow Yahweh meticulously in exactly what He said. And we just read it and it seems like a whole lot, but that's only one utensil, the lampstand. Look at verse 40 right after Yahweh says that. He says to Moses in verse 40, Be careful. 
to make everything according to the model of them you have been shown on the mountain. And this goes back to the last sermon. Moses, I'm showing you a pattern. I'm showing you the heavenly tabernacle. You make everything according to the pattern or the model that I'm showing you. I want you to copy it. I want you to make something that resembles it. That's an example of it. And what does he say in verse 40? He says, be careful. You make those almond blossoms. Everything that we do for Yahweh should be done to the best of our ability. Amen. Everything that we do. Including whether it's making of a menorah, which is the Hebrew word for lampstand here, the, the seven candlesticks that come off of that one lampstand. Seven candles. That's the menorah in Hebrew. It was a holy lampstand. Whether it be that or whether it be singing a song or playing an instrument or, or, or writing a book or, or helping somebody out along the way, everything we do should be done to the best of our ability. Now, if you're, if you're like me, you've not always done everything to the best of your ability. And there's forgiveness. There's repentance. But, think about this next time you're going to do something. And everything you really do should be done to the glory of Yahweh. Think about this. Am I doing this to the best of my ability? My dad always said, Son, all I ask out of you is that you do your best. I don't ask any more out of you, but you just do your best. That really stuck with me. And you know what? That helped me because it let me know that my dad didn't didn't require something of me that I wasn't capable of. But he just said, you do your best. And that's what you're always asking us to do. Do your best. If it's done to me, it needs to be done right. While the earthly tabernacle is extremely important, nonetheless, we learned in the last message that the heavenly tabernacle is of greater importance. It did not become greater at the time of Yeshua. It's always been greater than the earthly tabernacle. It's the tabernacle that the earthly one was patterned after. So that which came first would obviously be greatest in importance. It would be chief in importance. Yahweh has a reason for the heavenly tabernacle. It's up there right now. And Yahweh has a reason for the earthly tabernacle. Likewise, Yahweh has a reason for the offering of Yeshua, His Son, that pertains to the heavenly tabernacle. And Yahweh has a reason for the offering of the animal sacrifices that pertain not to the heavenly, but to the earthly tabernacle. Two different venues, two different tabernacles. This will help you out so much in harmonizing the Scriptures. Yeshua pertains to the heavenly tabernacle. His blood is applied to the heavenly holy of holies. The blood of animals only pertains to the earthly tabernacle. Two different venues. Now we begin in Hebrews 8, 1 through 5 today, and now I'm going to camp out in the book of Hebrews for the remainder of this lesson. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter 2. I want to show you how that the author of Hebrews often argues from the lesser to the greater. He'll make a, an argument and he'll say, now if this is true, then how much more is this true? Okay? If this is true, this less thing is true, how much more is this greater thing true? The author of Hebrews argues like this frequently in his writings. I'm going to show you that. Here in Hebrews 2, let's look at verses 1 through 3. Verse 1. He says this, We must therefore pay even more attention to what we have heard, so that we will not drift away. Now, you cannot understand Hebrews 2 verse 1 unless you understand the whole chapter 1 of Hebrews. And I'm not going to go over verse by verse chapter 1 of Hebrews. But let me briefly say that chapter 1 deals with the superiority of the Messiah over the angels. 
the author spends a whole chapter teaching us how that the Messiah is greater than the angels. It actually teaches us how that the Messiah is not an angel. Now, we have groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses and some of the Assemblies of Yahweh that believe that the Messiah, before he came to this earth, existed as an angel. Some people say Michael the archangel. Some people say he was the first angelic spiritual being created by Yahweh before everything else. And maybe that he wasn't Michael. Hebrews 1 teaches us that he's not an angel. That is an angelic being. Now, he is an angel in the sense of he's a messenger. But we're talking about a spiritual heavenly being. Okay? He's not an immortal angel. Alright? Look at Hebrews 1 verse 4. Notice it says, So he became higher in rank than the angels. Hebrews 1 verse 5, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. Look at Hebrews 1.13. Now to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Like I said, I could teach a whole lesson on Hebrews 1, but that's not my point today. Hebrews 1, you can go back and read it. It's dealing with the superiority of Messiah over the angelic creation. So that's why he says in Hebrews 2 verse 1, that we've got to pay attention to what we've heard, more attention to what we've heard, so that we will not drift away. And what he's talking about is what we've heard from the Messiah. Hebrews 2, verse 2. For if the message spoken through angels was legally binding, and every transgression and disobedience received a just punishment. Now, this verse makes a comparison here. The message spoken by angels was two things. One, it was legally binding. And two, when somebody transgressed that message, they received a just punishment. What this is talking about, brothers and sisters, is that the Torah, the law of Yahweh, Torah is the Hebrew word that we say in English, law. It means teachings and instructions, guidance, Yahweh's welfare for our life, basically is what the word Torah means. That law came through the mediation of angels. Hebrews 2 talks about this. Galatians talks about it. Acts chapter 7 talks about it. Exodus 3 talks about it. The law came through the mediation of angels, and when somebody transgressed that law, they received a just punishment, and they were guilty because that law was legally binding. Now look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was first spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard Him. What the author is saying is this. If the message spoken by angels was important and those who did not listen to that message were punished, how will we escape if we do not take heed to the message spoken by the Lord, the Son? Talked about all through chapter 1. Lesser to the greater. If this is true, that is true. If you're punished for transgressing the law that came through the mediation of angels, will you not be punished? for transgressing the teachings that came through the Son of Yahweh? That's the author's argument, from the lesser to the greater. The only way that the greater makes sense is if the first thing mentioned is true. And it is. It is. The word came through angels, and you were guilty if you transgressed it. That means the greater thing is also true. Now, look at something similar in Hebrews 10. Look at Hebrews 10, verse 28 through 29. Hebrews 10, verse 28. If anyone disregards Moses' law, he dies without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, is that true? Yes, that's absolutely true. We know this if we know the law. 
if a person committed a capital crime, which, if I'm not mistaken, eight out of the Ten Commandments are capital crimes. And the other two, the Eighth Commandment and the Tenth Commandment, thou shalt not steal and thou shalt not covet, they can turn into capital crimes. Okay? But eight out of the ten are, are already capital crimes. And if you violated one of those commandments under the judicial system of Israel, and I believe it should be this way now, even though it's not, if you violate one of those commandments, you are guilty of death if it comes out of the mouth, if it can be proven out of the mouth of two or more eyewitnesses. Deuteronomy 17, 2 through 7 talks about that. You cannot put a man to death out of the mouth of only one witness, but two or more, you put him to death, and the witnesses have to be the first ones to throw the stone at the one that is guilty. Is that true? Well, yes, of course it is. That's a pretty hard penalty, isn't it? Now, I want you to look at verse 29. Verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and insulted the Spirit of grace? This is referring to willful, deliberate sin, if you go back to verse 26. In other words, if you just continuously, you know what's right. You know the law. Under Moses, you die without mercy out of the mouth of two or more witnesses. But under the blood of the Son of Yahweh, it's even worse. Why? Because it's not just an animal that has died. It's Yahweh's own Son. He shed His blood. This is called trampling, trodden under your feet, as King James Version puts it, the Son of God. It's like stomping all over Him. Or, as we've said before, walking through His blood. I don't give a care what you taught. I don't give a care what you did. I don't give a care how you died. Is what you're saying if you go on sinning deliberately after you've come to the knowledge of the truth. That's powerful, isn't it? It's pretty bad under Moses' law. It's even worse now that the Son of Yahweh has shed His blood. You've insulted the Spirit of grace. You've regarded as profane the blood of the covenant. You see that word profane there in the Holman Bible? That is the Greek word koinos, which is translated common in Acts chapter 10. You remember where Peter said, I've not eaten anything common or unclean? The word common is koinos. What he's saying is, you've regarded that precious blood as something that's just ordinary. Something that's just common. And you do that when you sin willfully. Do you see how he's arguing, though, from the lesser to the greater? He makes a point about Moses' law. He says, if this is true, then how much more is this true? Both of them are true, but one's greater than the other. Same thing as in Hebrews 1 and 2. The angels are great, but the Son is greater. Moses is great, but the Son is greater. You see this? The lesser to the greater. Now, with that in mind, look at Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to stay in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning at verse 11. Let's read verse 11. It says, Now the Messiah has appeared, high priest of the good things that have come, in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Verse 11 tells us that Yeshua has appeared, and He's appeared as a high priest. If we know the Torah, we know the high priest was one of the, if not the holiest man in Israel. He was the only man that got to enter into the most holy place in the tabernacle. 
In the tabernacle, of course, we had two places separated by a big curtain. The first one was the holy place. It was set apart. But the second one was even more holy than the first. It contained the what? Ark of the Covenant, right? In which was some very holy things. The Ten Commandments, the Tablets of Stone, Aaron's rod that budded the almond blossoms, and also the pot of manna, or a pot of manna from Exodus 16, or the wilderness wanderings, 40 years where they were receiving manna from heaven. That's the most holy place. That only got to be walked in one time a year. That was on today, the tenth day of the seventh moon. Only one time, and only by the high priest. So here we have the Messiah. He's the high priest. And it says he's the high priest of the good things that have come. Now, we have here, depending on what translation you read, a textual variant, because some Greek manuscripts read that have come. In other words, like everything's already come. But some read that are to come. I think we can learn from both of them. And I lean more towards that are to come than that have come based upon the Greek New Testament manuscripts. I think that it's exactly like the New Covenant. I believe the New Covenant has begun, but I don't believe that it's been completed yet. Based upon Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 33. For another message and another time, I've taught on that before. The New Covenant began at the bloodshed of Messiah, but it will not be completed until, I believe, after the 1,000 year reign. When the new heavens and the new earth finally come down, and then when we do not have any more need for a man to teach his neighbor saying, No, Yahweh, because everybody there will know Yahweh from the least of them to the greatest. Jeremiah 31, towards the end of the chapter, talks about that. So I think we can see that some things have come and some things are to come. I think he's a high priest of things that have come, according to some manuscripts, but I think he's a high priest of things that are to come, that is, the heavenly things. Revelation 21 and 22, also. Then it goes on to say that he's the high priest of the greater and the more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Which tabernacle is that referring to? That's the heavenly one, right? Are you with me? Are you alive? The heavenly tabernacle, it has to be. It's more perfect than the earthly. It's not of this creation. It's not made with human hands. Hebrews 8, 1 through 5 says that. It's made with heavenly hands, made by a spiritual being. His name is Yahweh. All glory to him today. The more perfect tabernacle. Verse 12. He, speaking of the Messiah, Entered the holy of holies once for all. But not the earthly holy of holies though. The heavenly holy of holies. This is not saying he entered into the earthly tabernacle like Aaron. No, this is saying he went when he ascended to the Father and he presented his self to the Father in that tabernacle up there. It really is there. Into the heavenly holy of holies. Remember, two tabernacles, two different venues, two different purposes. It goes on to say, once for all, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. See, eternal redemption could only be obtained by the blood of the Son of Yahweh. And never by the blood of a a calf or of a goat. The blood of a calf or a goat, as we're going to see, only pertain to the purification of the flesh. Once again, the earthly, not the heavenly. Verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who are defiled sanctify for the purification of the flesh, verse 14, how much more 
with the blood of the Messiah, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. Did you notice the lesser to the greater argument again? We saw one in Hebrews 2, we saw another in Hebrews 10, and we're going to see a third in Hebrews 9. What's the lesser to the greater here? If the animal sacrifices, the author says, purified the flesh, how much more will the blood of Messiah cleanse or purify the conscience? The point is clear. Each sacrifice has its purpose. The blood of animals' purpose was never meant to purify or to cleanse the conscience. Never. Only the flesh. Even the sacrifices for sin and guilt. There were two categories of sacrifices that dealt with sin. There were the sin offerings and the guilt offerings. And they were offered up many times even when somebody had never even committed a sin. For example, if you read Leviticus 12, it's a short chapter. It talks about purification of a woman after childbirth. It said that after she has that child, she's unclean so many days for a, a, a girl baby and so many days for a boy baby, and she continues in the, in the uncleanness for, for however how long. I think it's 40 for a male total and 80 for a female total, if I'm not mistaken. But at the end of that, she used to go to the temple and she used to offer up a certain type or types of animals. And some of those animals are to be offered as a sin offering. Now, that doesn't mean that it was a sin for her to have a baby. That sin offering is a purification of the flesh. It's a ritual purification. It never did, nor was it ever designed to take away sin. I think it's Hebrews 10 verse 4. Mark that down. Hebrews 10 verse 4 says, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats would ever take away sin. People's got the sacrificial system all botched up. They think that it used to take away sin, but now that the Messiah's come, we don't need that to take away sin anymore. Now the Messiah does. That's wrong. The sacrificial system in the Old Testament was never meant to take away sin. Do you know how the saints that lived in the Old Covenant are saved? The exact same way we are. Had Yeshua never died for their sins, they could never be saved. The Messiah's sacrifice purifies the conscience, the spirit, from dead works to serve the living God. Something the animal sacrifices do not do, nor ever did. But I want you to notice that the argument would not hold weight unless the first thing mentioned was actually true. Just like the other lesser to greater arguments. Notice verse 13 again. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, that is a cow, red cow, Numbers 19, sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctify for the purification of the flesh. That has to be true for verse 14 to be even more true. Do you see that? From the lesser to the greater, verse 14, how much more with the blood of the Messiah when we read the verse. It's from the lesser to the greater. One pertains to the earthly, one pertains to the heavenly. Each sacrifice has its purpose and we don't need to get them confused. It's not that Yeshua and His blood canceled out the sacrificial system. It's not that Yeshua and His blood replaced the sacrificial system. Yeshua and His blood has always been greater than the sacrificial system. What does Revelation 13 tell us? It tells us that Yeshua is the Lamb slain from the foundations of the earth. 
Now, that doesn't mean that he was literally killed, but it means that it was already as good as done in the plan of Yahweh, in the predestinated plan of Yahweh. He was already slain from the foundations of the earth. That sacrifice has always been greater than the animal sacrificial system, always. The sacrificial system was instituted for its purpose. The other, that's earthly venue. The other purpose was the heavenly venue, Yeshua, His blood. Don't mix up the two. It allows you to harmonize everything. It allows you to believe what Yahweh said when He said these laws were to be forever. Like when you read in Leviticus 16, there's a lot of laws that pertain to Yom Kippur, the day of covering or the day of atonement, the day we're in now. There's a lot of laws that we're not obeying right now. But it's not because we, we do not want to obey them. It's because we just simply cannot. But after Yeshua went to heaven, did you know that the earthly tabernacle stood for about 40 years? And did you know that every year on the Day of Atonement, every ritual and ordinance that pertained to that earthly tabernacle was still obeyed by the Messianic Israelite community? Why? Because that was a different venue. They recognized one was the heavenly and one was the earthly. They didn't confuse the two. Acts 21 talks all about that. If you want to go read it. In conclusion, the purpose of the animal sacrifices pertains to the earthly tabernacle. Those sacrifices do, I did say that, they do purify and sanctify the flesh. And the reason that I say it is because the Scriptures say it. All through the Torah it says it, and Hebrews 9.13 validates it. They do sanctify and purify the flesh, but what is the flesh? The flesh is of this world. The flesh is of this earth. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about there is a terrestrial body that is earthly, and there's also a what celestial body that is heavenly. Do you see two different things here still? Two different things? The animal sacrificial system allowed entrance into the tabernacle on earth, but they did not allow entrance into the tabernacle that is in heaven right now, and that will eventually come down in Revelation 21 and 22. In the what? The world to come. The new heavens and the new earth. When the new covenant will be finally completed. Like I said, we won't be teaching anybody then. Everybody will know Yahweh then. However, Yeshua's sacrifice did not cancel the animal sacrifices. His death pertains to a completely different venue, the heavenly tabernacle. Completely different. The only way we can gain entrance into the heavenly tabernacle, that is the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation 21 through 22, is through the blood of Yeshua. This is something that the blood of bulls and goats could never do. Their blood was not designed to gain entrance into the heavenly tabernacle. Never. Never. That's why the Son of Yahweh came. In due time, Galatians 4, 4 says, in the fullness of time. In other words, when Yahweh wanted it to happen. He'd already predestined it. He'd already foreordained it. What does Peter tell us? He was the Lamb. The Messiah was the Lamb. And he was foreordained from the foundations of the world, but manifest or revealed in these last times for you. You see that? And his blood gains us entrance into the heavenly tabernacle. So we need to be thankful for that today. We need to recognize the validity of both. And I think when we understand how the author of Hebrews argues from the lesser to the greater, 
It helps us understand. It helps us. If this is true, then how much more is this true? But always remember, in order for the second thing to be much more, the first thing has to be true. Or else the argument doesn't make any sense. So hopefully you understand what I'm saying. If not, I'll be more than glad to get you the CD. Or you can listen to it on my website. Happy Yom Kippur to everybody. It's been a wonderful one for me. I'm thankful that we can congregate on these set-apart days as a body, as a congregation. And we should. We're supposed to, you know. We're supposed to do that. So, all glory to Yahweh today. And also, I give all glory that He deserves to to Yeshua the Messiah as the second in command over the entire universe. Because Yahweh gave Him all that authority. And so He does deserve our praise and our glory too today as the Son of Yahweh. As Matthew 14.33 says, Then those that were in the boat worshipped Him and said, Truly, You are the Son of Yahweh. Hallelujah. Let's stand and close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I love You and I thank You today. Thank You for getting me through this sermon. Father, we're so thankful that we can practice self-denial. I think it's something we ought to do more often because it helps us to be more spiritual of, of people. Yahweh, Father, I pray that Father, if there's anything that I've said today that is not true, Father, I pray that you would show me and that you would call people here to forget anything false and only to remember that which is true from your word. Help me, help everybody here. We're thankful for the atonement. We're thankful for the earthly temple. And we're even more thankful for the heavenly temple. We're thankful, Father, for the old covenant, but we're even more thankful for the new covenant. Father, we're so appreciative of all that you do. Uh, lead us and guide us. Bring us back here next week for the Feast of Tabernacles. We rejoice in you, Father. We've had these ten days now to have repentance in our life, and now we're going to do some rejoicing at the feast. I pray, Father, that you would bless our feast. I pray, Father Yahweh, that there would be a spirit of shalom here, a spirit of peace, a spirit of love, a spirit of giving, a spirit of help. Yahweh, Father, and that all through it we would have the the second greatest commandment in our minds, to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Yahweh, Father, all glory to you. To Yahweh be the glory. Glory to Yahweh in the highest. And it's through your only begotten Son we pray. Amen.